The last couple of weeks during daily mass, we've been uh, reading about the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which are generally considered um, somewhat al allegorical or historical myths. So you have creation, you have both creation stories, you have Noah, you have the Tower of Babel. And um, it's been understood for centuries, millennia, that this is figurative language that is speaking truth. So the particular details are not necessarily true, a Garden of Eden, for instance, but that the truth that is being conveyed is being conveyed through a story because right before you have books, you have oral tradition. You have people telling stories about how stuff happened. Right? And so the, the creation stories get to the heart of relationship with God, what happened because of the fall, etc., the pervasiveness of evil that comes after it. But the particulars, the, the church has always, you know, from the beginning, and certainly even within Jewish tradition, um, has understood that these are, are allegorical. In other words, in Scripture, or larger point, in Scripture, there are all kinds of different types of literature. And because we're Catholic, we use our intellect as opposed to Bible Christians who interpret everything literally, which is problematic because, of course, it's our book, not theirs. They got it from the Catholic Church. But um, the part of, part of their theology is total depravity. I mean, they don't know that because they don't know history and philosophy, but part of their theology is that they can't trust their reason. So they just have to take everything at face value until, of course, it talks about the Eucharist, and then all of a sudden it's figurative. But... Um, but for Catholics, we don't have this problem because we don't believe in a completely darkened intellect. We believe that we're created in the image and likeness of God. And so while uh, we can't know things perfectly, we can know things. While we can't always act in perfect freedom, we can act in freedom. The human person is not completely depraved. Okay. So when we're looking at the scriptures, then we have to use our reason to understand it right, and to interpret it. It's not just literal all the time. Sometimes it's, there are proverbs, right, there's songs, there's, there's poetry. Um, some of it is very historical. You know, some of it is kind of historical. It, it just kind of depends on the, the literature that we have. Now, when we move to the New Testament, we generally have two types of literature. We have letters, like Paul and, and John, who write these letters to the existing Catholic churches of the region. And then we also have, in the, in the gospel, we have what is clearly biographical data. All right, it's clearly eyewitness data. It obviously is that kind of literature. However, within that, with these sayings of Christ, we also have to understand what he means. And what he means is not always just literally what he's saying, because it's, it doesn't make any sense. And God needs to make sense. It needs to be, it may not, there's a difference between understanding something fully and something being irrational. We can know that things are in, in concord with reason and not fully understand them, okay? But they're rational. So when we hear a saying like this, basically, let somebody who is evil do whatever they want to you, that's nonsensical. God would not ask us to do that. So what is he doing? 
Well, again, we don't have to hear it literally if we understand the type of language he's using. He's using um, polemical language to get, a gra- to get a point across, or more specifically, hyperbolic language, overstating the point, right? So if you consider that the Jewish tradition up to that point had been so obsessed with the law, but particularly the, uh, the, the Jewish leaders of the time are obsessed with the literal interpretation and the exact application of the law. And Jesus comes not to do that, but to fulfill the law. In other words, the law doesn't exist for its own good or its own sake. It exists for something greater than itself. The law exists to set us free. The law exists to help us to become certain types of people, to grow in virtue and holiness. But at the end of our lives, to be able to say, well, I just kept the law. Okay, well, great, but did you become holy? No, not really, but I kept the law. Not good enough. And this is what Jesus is getting across, and he's been getting across for a few weeks now with the Sermon on the Mount, beginning with the Beatitudes, and then these sayings. You have heard that it was said this, an eye for an eye and a tooth for the tooth, but I say to you, go further. He's using um, you know, language that is overstated. I love you more than the world itself. I love you more than God could ever love another human, you know, which is ridiculous. I love you more than all the chocolate chip cookies in the world, which is equally ri- ridiculous. Um, you know, we use this kind of language to make a point, to overstate something, right? To convey that we need to go way further with something, okay? And that's what he's doing with this language. He's not saying let somebody treat you badly and continue to put up with it. No, that would not be healthy. That would not be good for us. He's not saying never act in self-defense. The early church wrestled with this very question specifically because of this, this gospel. And it took a while for the church to figure it out. But particularly once we get to about the mid-300s, the church gets it figured out and says, no, it's, it's allowable to even enter into war as a Christian if doing so is out of self-defense. You get that whole just war theory early on in Christianity, Augustine actually, right? Because there is a right for people to defend themselves. Furthermore, if you just talk about it at the relational level, if somebody is not healthy for you, stay away. Doesn't mean you don't forgive, but stay away. Of course you would stay away. You don't let somebody continue to harm you It's not healthy. That's not good. And if you're in such a relationship and particularly, you know, I mean, if it can't get better, you got to get out. You got to get out. If you're being hurt, if you're being harmed, it's not healthy. All right. So does that make sense? That's what God's getting. That's what God, Jesus is getting at, that um, we're to take the demands of the law to fruition. An eye for an eye and a tooth for, for a tooth isn't good enough. He wants us to be people of peace. And yes, people are going to do evil to us. That doesn't mean that we have to do an eye for an eye in that context. Sometimes we're just going to be hurt. But that doesn't mean we go back for more. That doesn't mean we stay in unhealthy places. It means that he wants us to prefer peace to all else. You know, and self-defense becomes a last resort. Sometimes necessary, but a last resort. I mean, think, you know, if nobody stood up to, to Germany in the early 20th century, what would have happened? 
right? I mean, it, it, it's just non-rational to think that the Lord would say, never defend yourself. Okay. So when we're looking at this, then one of the, the principal concepts here has to do with forgiveness. Why forgive? All right. And he talks about this over and over and over, about loving your neighbor and loving your enemy. And this is incredibly difficult for us. The, the idea and the, you know, just the idea, but the reality of forgiveness, right? When, when, when a person has been hurt very badly, just the idea that they could forgive is so far from their minds, you know, that, that to get to that place takes time, takes time. But why forgive? Well, I'm going to use an old adage because it's uh, just so fruitful. Holding on to resentment, unforgiveness. Holding on to resentment is like me drinking poison and expecting the other person to be harmed. Because the unforgiveness does nothing to the other person. We think we're getting them back. Well, I'm not going to forgive them. They don't care. Hate to break it to you. They don't care. Most of them don't care. Well, I'm not going to forgive because I'm going to hold on to this. They don't care. It's not affecting them. It's affecting you. They are living rent-free in your head. You're giving them more power by not forgiving. You're giving them more power by holding on to resentment. Well, I'm not going to forgive. They're not sorry. Forgiveness is not contingent on them being sorry or even being aware they hurt you because it has nothing really to do with the other person. It has everything to do with us, the one who needs to forgive. Well, they don't have a right to forgiveness. Who does? Who does? As if we have a right to God's forgiveness? No one really has a right to it. This is why it's such a Christian value and virtue. But even the pagans forgive, specifically those who love them. But it's an interesting thing. Think about, you know, maybe you're not in this space right now, but, but most people are in this space, you know, once in a while in their lives and sometimes perpetually. Think about the resentments that you're holding on to. You hold on to them like they're the, your most precious belonging. I need to hold on to that resentment. Do you? What good is it giving you? How does it benefit you? that you're holding on to it. Well, that person really hurt me, and tragically so at times. But how does it help you? You see, forgiveness is about you unbinding yourself from the other person, letting go, and no longer allowing that event or situation to continue to hurt you. We hold on to the resentment because sometimes we need to be a victim as though it gives us power, which is a particular problem of the age we live in. Victimhood gives people power, the feeling of power, but it's actually not powerful at all. It's giving in to the one who offended. It's giving in to the one who hurt. To continue to stay in your victimhood continues to make them powerful over you. And ultimately, it destroys the soul. I've seen it. You've, maybe you've seen it too. 
a person who becomes just crippled. And it even comes out physically, not just in their, their spirit and the way they engage other people, the bitterness that they carry. It's an odd thing to see that. It's understandable. Like if we knew the whole story, it would make sense. But it's an odd thing that we would hold, if you think about it, why would we hold on to something that's so poisonous and does us no good? So forgiveness is really about setting, being set free, setting ourselves free and allowing God to set us free from the harm that's happened, whatever it is. Being set free. It says, I'm going to let it go. Not because they deserve it, not because they're sorry, not because they changed. For me, I'm going to let it go. Because God wants me to live in freedom and joy. And that's holding me back. You don't have to carry it. An experience I've had so many times. Because people are mad at lots of stuff, you know. Well, you know, because you're the people. <laughs> You know, we can be mad at mom and dad. We can be mad at brothers and sisters, our children. Uh, we can be mad at God. That's a big thing. Um, we can be mad at the priest. We can be mad at, I mean, mad at anybody. You know, it happens all the time. And I've had that experience of being with people when they finally are ready to let it go. And sometimes they've been, been carrying this stuff for decades, decades. And the experience, the privileged experience that I have had in, in being a part of that and allowing somebody to let it go, it's, I mean, I can feel it. I can feel it. And I can feel it not just at an emotional level, but even a spiritual level. I don't know if that's a priest thing or, you know, there's got to be some priest things. But, you know, the, the experience is this lightness, this weight just dropping this weight and that person leaving so much lighter and unburdened. You see, this is what Jesus wants you to have. He doesn't want you to forget that somebody harmed you and you should stay away. He's not saying, you know, go back into relationship with someone like that. He's not saying that at all. He's saying, I want you to be free. Let it go. And then the second thing he promises with that, besides freedom, is he promises us that the measure with which we measure will be measured out to us. We say it also every time we pray the Our Father. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, which you can take that in two ways. The presumption is we're doing it. The second is that it is a, a bit of an equation. Forgive us to the degree that I'm forgiving as well, which is how Jesus speaks of it. I will forgive you in the same fashion that you forgive others. And we need his forgiveness. So it's good for us to forgive. It's beneficial for us to give. It sets us free. It opens us up for blessing and forgiveness. And it's not just that we're doing it so we'll be forgiven. It's because God needs us to be certain types of people who can receive forgiveness. If we can't give it, we can't receive it. You see, he needs us to be people of forgiveness so that we can receive his forgiveness. And so many people hold on to stuff thinking they can't be forgiven, which sometimes they use to justify not forgiving others. You see, this, it twists the soul. This is not what God wants. He wants freedom and joy 
and peace now, as soon as possible. So I invite you then to consider this, uh, of course. Whatever you're holding on to, you don't have to. And it doesn't have to be about the other person. It can just be about you letting go, laying it down, let God take it, and enjoy the peace that comes 